Unexpected trouble? CashNet USA can take the stress out of borrowing emergency funds. Our fast, secure application process makes it easy to apply online 24-7. Plus, CashNet USA offers same-day funding if approved before 10.30 a.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Additional terms may apply. Visit CashNetUSA.com or tap the banner to apply today. Fall is the most birthday-packed season of the year, so chances are you have a few celebrations coming up. Make sure your friends and family feel special with a gorgeous bouquet of roses from 1-800-Flowers.com. 1-800-Flowers makes it easy to send the perfect gift. 24 multicolored roses for just $39.99. To get 24 multicolored roses for just $39.99, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Will Riley. He has just published a book titled Hate Crime Hoax, How the Far Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And uh, he's taken time out of his busy schedule to discuss the book. I read it, just finished it today. It's an excellent book, uh, very erudite, very knowledgeable about the subject. He has a uh, very strong academic background in social sciences and law, so I think that informs the book. He has a BA in Southern, at, from Southern Illinois University. JD, University of Illinois, PhD, Southern Illinois University, teaches at a predominantly black state school at Kentucky State University right now. And uh, I read the book. I also kind of tried to figure out his dissertation, which was from 2015, the title of which is The Effect of Racial Status and Other Core Characteristics on Collective Self-Esteem, a Quantitative Test of Divergent Theories of Identity Evaluation. Um, But uh, anyway, we're going to talk about the book, maybe... Touch on some earlier things. The book was published before some other topical hoaxes that we can discuss as well. But it really is a a great group of uh, collection of information. So, Will, are you there? Yep, right here. Awesome. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who haven't heard your name, maybe what you can do is talk a little bit about your background. I covered your curriculum vitae, but uh, talk about your background and how you became interested in the subject. So yeah, my name's Will Riley or Wilfred Riley. I'm an Illinoisan by background, as you might guess from that list of schools. I was born on the south side of Chicago, grew up on the east side of nearby Aurora. And like most would-be academics, I mean, yeah, spent about 10, 15 years in college. I went to Southern Illinois to get the BA, which was a very, very fun school at that time. I went to the University of Illinois for law school. Law school is generally not fun, but I like to think I learned some things there. I uh, went on to get a PhD at Southern Illinois University. And for the past couple of years, I've been residing pretty happily in Frankfurt, which is another mid-sized city. It's the Kentucky state capital. And I teach political science and on occasion counterintelligence and cybersecurity at the Kentucky State University, one of the nation's older and larger black colleges up there with um, the Moore houses and center states, that kind of thing. Um, so that, that's pretty much my academic background. I've written, as you said, one previous book, which was based on my dissertation. The book that came out of that with the small academic press scholars is called The $50 Million Question. And what I do with that, not to take a long time, but I look at a question. Are you familiar with Andrew Hacker? I'm not. I've never heard that name. Okay. Andrew Hacker was a guy who was fairly famous back in the 1990s, late 90s. He was a left-wing white social scientist. And the experiment that made him famous, and I think deservingly so, was one where he asked a group of several hundred white college students how much they'd have to be paid to become black. 
And the average answer was $50 million. And this, along with Peggy McIntosh's uh, essay, White Privilege, really created this idea of white privilege, that white status has so much value in a society as racist and evil as ours that you'd have to pay whites tens or hundreds of millions to become black. And as, I guess, a middle or upper middle class black guy from you know an integrated, diverse neighborhood in a big city, I thought that the error in that experiment was that he never asked any black guys how much they'd have to be paid to become white. So that's basically what my dissertation is. I ask people of all backgrounds, would you ever consider changing these core identities, your race, your sex, your religion, your sexual orientation? Do you think that idea is stupid or would you consider changing these identities? And if you would consider doing that, how much money would you demand? And what I find is that racism, if you even want to use that term, is very evenly distributed among all groups. Like the group most attached to their identity was old Asian men. Interesting. Uh, their, their idea was sort of like you Westerners, you gadflies. We were living in castles when you were living in caves. No, I'd never become white or black or whatever. Um, black people were the second most racialist group, uh, followed by whites. And there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in there. Whites and blacks only disliked each other. So both groups would have been willing, for example, to become Hispanic. Uh, Hispanics were virtually non-racist. Um, their perception was that they are an ethnicity made up of many races. It was quite civilized, actually. Um, Muslims felt the same way. That, of course, isn't a race. Uh, I found that people are more attached to a number of other things like sex and sexual orientation than they are to race, i.e. people are more sexist or more homophobic, if you want to use those terms, than they are racist. I mean, if you asked me, would you become white? And if so, for what amount of money? Frankly, if you offered me a million dollars to become a Caucasian, I'm sure I'd take it. Um, but if you asked me, you know, what amount of money would it take for you to change your sexual orientation or every one of your religious and political beliefs, I'm not sure there's a price for that. Interesting. So, but that was the previous book. This book, Hate Crime Hoax, available wherever fine books are sold and on Amazon.com looks at the phenomenon of hate crime hoaxes in modern American society. And there are quite a few. And during this interview, we'll discuss some and I'll tell people how to get my data set and so on, I suppose. Okay. And you, uh, you became it. You, you say that in the intro that it is a pro-American and a pro-black work of social science. So you wrote the book with the intention of lancing a boil. Mm -hmm. How would you describe that boil that you want to lance? Well, I think that one of the very problematic ideas in our society is that the cause of virtually every problem in black and minority communities is racism. And that extraordinarily prevalent racial prejudice is a major problem in contemporary American society. So you hear constantly about these scary new forms of racism, I mean, subtle racism, white privilege, cultural appropriation, what's the new one, implicit bias, where the tests are never replicable, but where this has become the new popular trendy form of bigotry. So almost every problem in minority communities, whether that's SAT scores slightly but definitely behind those of whites, uh, troubling interactions with the police, pretty much anything you could think of is attributed to prejudice. And evidence of this prejudice, when it is found, is almost invariably publicized to a really, really high degree. Uh, if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, in practice, that was based on less than 25 cases of violent encounters between young black men and the police. But for two years, we were told that this was a horrible boil in our society. And I think if you look empirically, 
there's not much evidence that the United States is on the verge of any sort of racial conflict. So, I mean, the, the simple reality is that legal segregation ended with Brown v. Board in 1954, although in, enforcement took a while, but was over by the very early 70s. I remember the Titans era. This was true only in the South, by the way. I mean, my high school in the North integrated in 1926. Interesting. Right. That's an excellent point. Yeah. So, I mean, the, actually, one of the pictures I have in my office is of the starting football backfield for East High. I believe this is in the 30s. I can send along the picture if you ever like to look at it. But it's a white guy, a white guy who's half Native American, an Italian guy who probably wouldn't have been considered white at the time, and a black guy. And they are all just have their arms across each other's shoulders and they're laughing. Because this is Metro Chicago, and I'm sure there's a great deal of prejudice if you tried to get your license as a dentist or something like that. But the Jim Crow segregation in the South did not extend to many of the larger black communities, such as Harlem Renaissance, New York. And that is that is almost never discussed. And I think there are reasons for that. Right. But I mean, the Civil Rights Act made racism formally, civilly and criminally illegal in 1965. We're one of the few countries in the world where you can't be an individual bigot. So... If I open a barbecue restaurant and I want to serve only blacks in my small cul-de-sac restaurant or only whites or whatever, I cannot do that. I think that's good, but that is an American triumph we shouldn't forget. Uh, Pro-minority affirmative action, which I'm less enthusiastic about, began in 1967. And if you look at the data, less than one in 10 whites, less than one in seven people of color tests as a racist at all. So there's not much evidence that the USA of 2018 is an institutionally racist and wicked place. So when you hear that narrative from the larger civil rights players, which you do all the time, Southern Poverty Law Center comes to mind, right. uh, I think it's important to challenge that. And one of the things that I saw really being used uh, by SPLC, by CARE, Council for American Islamic Relations, which I've given to before. I mean, again, these groups do some good, but one of the things that they very definitely do is promote this narrative of prejudice. And one of the things used to support this is these incidents of alleged violent hate. So if you're on the emailing list for a civil rights group, virtually every day you'll get some incident like young black woman in Grand Rapids claims white men urinated on her. Uh, it turns out that incident's a hoax, by the way. I was able to add it to my list. But looking at a lot of these claims of racism broadly, I found that a lot of them do not seem to be validatable, if that's a term, in the modern era. And a lot of the cases specifically of hate crime that were used to promote this narrative, frankly, never happened. So, I mean, I guess the one sentence pitch line for hate crime hoax would be that many, I think you could say most, of the very high profile, widely publicized hate crime incidents in the recent past have turned out to be hoaxes. So, I mean, you've got Jussie Smollett. Right. Uh, I think you could add Covington Catholic to that list where you had this crazy narrative that a Native American Indian tribal elder was surrounded by these young white male athletes that threatened to take his sacred rain drum. They chanted, build the wall, which is a damned ironic thing to say to an Indian. Uh, never happened. Supposedly right. Yeah, I mean... Right. Uh, and there, there's so much in that case. I'm not going to insult this guy, but it turned out he'd been an extra in Skrillex videos. He seemed to make sort of a career out of native tribal politics. But uh, Yasmin Saweed is another case. The uh, allegation that four blonde, handsome Trump supporters attempted to tear the hijab off of a Middle Eastern woman in broad daylight. Uh, Eastern Michigan Air Force Academy, where you had a literal general show up on campus at one of our service academies, speak against hate. Grand Rapids, where a young black girl pre-college claimed that boorish white men literally urinated on her. Key in college with the death threats via Twitter. 
Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses all over campus, the UVA rape where the allegation was right. that the fraternities were holding these sort of story of O style rape rings upstairs in their houses, anti-feminist rape rings. You could go back to Duke Lacrosse, Tawana Brawley. All these have turned out to be fakes. And so I think a lot of the pillars of support for this narrative of kind of warfare between groups in the USA turn out to be fakes or hoaxes. This is true on the alt-right as well, by the way, but I look at why this is. Right. I mean, and so there, there, there's a reason behind why these disparate individuals in different jurisdictions or states are coming up with these hoaxes. So you really kind of get into the, the rationales behind why there are so many of these uh, race hoax events happening. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a couple of different levels of uh, motivation here. I mean, at level one, you have the sort of tawdry personal motivations that people have when they commit crimes. Uh, Jesse James, the American outlaw, was very famously asked, why do you rob banks? That's a sin. And he said, well, that's where the money is. Um, so you see that sometimes with hate hoax incidents. I mean, there was a case, um, it's generally referred to as the Continental Spices Cash and Carry Fire. But this was a situation where an Arab American merchant had trouble making the monthly note on his business, which was kind of a lovely small store. So, you know, tears in his eyes, he wrote this anti-Arab graffiti throughout the place and burned it down. And the idea was that's one of the few ways he could collect on the insurance and move on in his life. And we see a couple of incidents almost exactly like that. Uh, the healthy time fire in Paris, Tennessee, for example. Uh, so that's part of the motivation. I think at least as often you see people that are individually motivated by a belief that they're calling attention to a real problem. Right. So... Um, th this is very common on college campuses. A at the University of Michigan, you had a young woman named Haley Bass. This was kind of a string of hoaxes. But uh, Ms. Bass claimed that, don't want to assume his or her gender there, but I think it's Ms. Bass. Uh, Ms. Bass claimed that someone jumped out of an alley and slashed them across the face with a knife, small knife or a hat pin or something like that, because she was walking around probably we proudly wearing leftist political buttons. And it turned out this was a hoax. They went through the camera footage for the entire area. Nothing of the kind had ever happened. Um, but when confronted about this, Bass said that her motivation was avenging some of the racist incidents on campus, most particularly an attack on a young Muslim American woman who'd been threatened with being beaten and, in fact, with being burned alive for being of Islamic faith. But it turned out that when that person was interrogated, she had made up the whole thing, too. Right. So, so the whole thing was just BS. No one had ever been threatened. I believe the student body president at the time was black. I mean, so that's something you see more in the academy, just case after case after case of people trying to prove that there's racism afoot when there's not. But they, and, they use the, the rationale of previous racism to justify their hoax. And you see that yes, when looking at all the cases in there, yeah. Yeah, although in a, a third or more of these college campus cases, the previous racism didn't happen either. Right, so it's just a hoax upon a hoax. And you re reference in many of your chapters, the you use these acronyms. One is the CON, the Continuing Oppression Narrative. So that seems to be the rationale, at least for people of color. You, you use people of color as well. That seems to be this justification for these hoaxes, which you know, burn very bright through the campuses as well as the media. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the curious things about American society today, and I say this actually as a politically centrist black guy, um, is the extent to which a lot of economic pillars, whether you're talking about affirmative action, whether you're talking about minority set-asides, I mean, for example, I could buy a radio station for about half price. I've been told that during numerous radio interviews, and I've jokingly threatened hosts with their jobs and so on. But I mean, that that is a reality. I've checked it out. I've thought about getting into the business after That's finding awesome. this out. Affirmative action, minority set-asides, the budgets for the gigantic activist groups. I mean, we mentioned SPLC. They have a well-invested endowment of, last I looked, $432 million. Yeah, it's incredible. Their, income, a, their yearly income is off the charts. Yeah, I think it's 60 to 90 million a year. I mean, now th this is on par with the state university I teach at. KSU is not a tiny institution. So, I mean, you've got to understand the endowment for Southern Illinois University is 130 million. For the University of Illinois, we recently cracked a billion. So to have an endowment, not an annual profit or revenue stream, just your investments, that's half a billion dollars, that is that is large. Right. And <laughs> I mean, it's an industry. Important. It's really an industry. Uh, to some extent, okay. yeah. Yeah, I, would, I don't necessarily think that that is false. Okay. There, there is a tendency, when, I, when I've done shows on both the left and the right, I mean, there is kind of the question, is this going to be spun into something conspiratorial? But in fact, I mean, obviously, if you look at the civil rights infrastructure, you have the older traditional groups, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center, what is Al Sharpton, uh, National Action Network, the NAN. Mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson recently did a corporate takeover. His Rainbow Coalition, they bought Push or they merged with it, so now it's Rainbow Push. Interesting. Um, I don't I don't think the NAACP is really that bad in this area, but I mean that that obviously is a very powerful activist group. You have the newer players, I mean you have Black Lives Matter, the dozens of different Occupy and Antifa factions, one of which spawned off into Occupy Democrats, which is now a media power player. You have large fringe groups like the Aslan movement, Nation of Islam. I mean, if you add all that up together and then you look at the impact of affirmative action, you look at the impact of set-asides, there is a substantial amount of money and time invested in the idea that there is a massive ethnic conflict in the United States. And I think that a very practical result of that is that when we see any evidence of ethnic conflict, especially white-on-black abuse, and we'll probably talk about this, but that's not the way interracial crime usually cuts, as you probably know. But when you see any evidence of interracial clash, especially white on black abuse, that's immediately spotlit into the front pages. Um, and again, you could you could talk about this at a bunch of different fronts. Black Lives Matter with Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin and so on dominating the airwaves for several years would be another example. Right. I mean, now you're seeing the alleged abuse of um, the phrase would be asylum seekers of illegal immigrant teenagers. So anytime something like this happens, you can count on a massive, massive amount of press, as opposed to much more serious incidents within society itself. Like, if I can ask, how many people would you, would you guess are killed just in auto wrecks every year, just tooling around on the highway? 20,000? Pretty close. It's actually about 50,000. 50, wow, that's a lot. Yeah, oh. I mean, I saw one today. So, I mean, that's something where no coverage is ever given. No one, there's not really any plan on either the right or the left to reshape our car-based infrastructure into something where you have effective trains between even cities the size of Frankfurt and Louisville. This is a personal pet peeve of mine, as you might be able to tell. But I mean, that's a real issue. Suicide for our veterans, which is 16,000 people a year, is a real issue. I guess where I'm going with this is that because of the amount of money invested in the idea that there is still massive racism in the USA, quote-unquote evidence of that tends to get frontlined. It tends to get pushed up 
to the headlines, to the front of a news broadcast, so on. And I don't personally feel that that is very often justified. Gotcha. And I mean, then the other thing is that uh, a lot of these industry or these large groups that you mentioned, once this hoax is exposed, uh, they never really walk it back. There's actually oftentimes the the hoaxer obtains a benefit or the, the school itself, the university, will enact changes that, that are based upon this deceptive uh, event. Yeah, that's, that's something that I talk about in the book almost jokingly, where the comment is that if you see a story that hits all the media buttons, there's hate between the races, there may be sex involved, it's on a pretty college campus, that's going to run on page one. And that obviously is where Jussie Smollett ran for weeks, Covington Catholic ran for weeks. Jussie Smollett is something of an exception, but normally what you see is that when that case is almost inevitably revealed a month later to be a fake, that will be discussed on page 26 of the leisure and pet cat section (laughs) in small agate type. So, I mean, yeah, and I won't say almost inevitably proven to be a hoax. The the conviction rate in hate crime crime cases is under 10%, but I'm sure there are more real hate crimes than there are proven hoaxes. But in these high-profile cases, very often what you see, Yasmin Saweed comes to mind, is a massive, massive, massive blitz of coverage. And then the way it's framed is people start to get suspicious or the police haven't yet found a lead. And the paper runs a final story and says, let's wait and see. And then that's it. And inevitably, social scientists a year or two down the road will code that as probably not having happened. But very often that statement is never made in the press at all. Uh, When it can't be avoided, it's often made in as slanted a set of terms as possible. I mean, a lot of media outlets still do not seem to have admitted that the Covington Catholic situation was a hoax. Interesting. The default position seems to be, but look at that kid. He was smiling at him. Right. So they still go back and say that same thing. Yeah. But they're also it's not just these these groups that have been interested in looking at these incidences. But don't you think the media spikes and has a financial benefit when they have these shows that are gripping the viewers? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So, I mean, I think the media has several biases. And on the center right, which is probably where I am politically, obviously everyone kind of works the refs and jokes, that not really jokes, but says that the media has a liberal bias, a coastal bias, and they do. I mean, there's a famous study by Pew in 2004 that found that, as I recall, 93% of national media journalists were either liberals or left-leaning moderates, mostly left-leaning moderates. Only 7% were conservatives of any kind. Uh, including libertarians, evangelicals, so on down the line. So when you say that there's a big city lefty bias in the media, there is. But I think the more important bias in the media is a bias towards sensationalism. The goal of media outlets, especially 24-hour cable media and social media like Facebook and Twitter, is to develop almost an addictive cycle with the user where people keep coming back and back and back. They keep hate clicking on the link, they keep commenting, they keep posting, they share it with their friends. Um, And you you even get interplay where the NBC organization owns Vox, which is one of the larger players people engage with on social media. So I think the media very definitely has mastered this art 
of putting out stories that get people scared or sexually excited or otherwise energized. And there seem to be a bunch of things that fall into this category, like the atavistic horror of being eaten by an animal is one of them. I mean, we saw the first shark attack story of the summer just a couple of weeks ago in the New York Post. Wow. Uh, I don't, I don't know how many people are eaten by sharks, but it's not that damn many. No. But there's been massive media coverage of this going back to before the movie Jaws and inspiring it. So that's one of them. Um, erectile dysfunction, at least in the terms of ads. Will you be able to perform as a man? Conflict between the races. The potential of war. I mean, there are certain stories that always get people animated and excited that people have an opinion about. And I think racial conflict stories and hate hoax stories fall right into that box. And that's why you see so many of them, or hate crime stories. Okay. Hate crimes, it's worth mentioning, are a tiny percentage of total crime. I mean, there are about 12 million crimes reported in a year. And most of them are utterly mundane. Uh, young, black, or poor white men shooting at each other and missing with junk-quality pistols. So there definitely is a conscious decision by people to focus on certain things that they think are exciting. Yeah. Gotcha. And, I mean, it's just incredible. That, I mean, the book by itself is actually really funny. I found myself laughing along. you got a real skill at uh, telling some... But it's also, there's a lot of pathos, you know, a lot of sad stories. A lot of people injured themselves to, you know, promote their own thing. There's people pouring acid on themselves. Tawana Brawley was like one of the, another one, you know, there's just such a list of people attaching themselves to this uh, that, and I, I mean, I think one of the more remarkable, you call it the mother of them all, was the University of Missouri hoax. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, the University of Missouri situation was odd because I think it's one of the first examples of people in, again, kind of business center right starting to use that phrase, go woke, go broke. So the University of Missouri was a series of almost ridiculous allegations made by students on the campus of Missouri Columbia, the flagship university in that system, great institution. And the university administration was so busy trying to be woke and trying to see if there was any truth there that this story just kept spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. Finally, the football team, that's an SEC football franchise, threatened to stop playing. The president was fired. Uh, enrollment now, at least among white students, is down 30 percent because people don't want to go to such an odd, radical place as they see it. So this is really an example of how things fall apart if you don't try to sort of hold the center, to quote Chiuna Akabe. But what happened at Mizzou was that people just kept claiming they'd been the victims of racial hate without much evidence. Right. So first... It's, yeah, it started uh, with just a drive-by, supposed drive-by insult that nobody else heard, right? Yeah, so the first issue is that the student body president, Peyton Head, was walking through downtown Columbia, and he said, and I don't say things like the N-word. He said someone yelled nigger at him uh, from the window of a passing car. And first of all, I mean, if someone did this to me, I would flip the bird and go on and get lunch. But so he gave an impassioned speech about this in the campus quad. He wrote an editorial about it. Uh, and again, we'll get into debunking these one by one, but that was the first one. The second one was a claim that... What did they say happened next? So it was Peyton Head said there was the like a blocking of the car, right? Wasn't there a car block? And then there was also like a conflict with the drunk guy that was interpreted as a as a racial racial event. Is that right? 
Yeah, so a couple different things. So, okay, Peyton Head first said that he was yelled at. Oh, the second one. Then Peyton Head said that he had spotted the KKK on campus. Right. And right. in this hilariously misspelled tweet, he said he was something like, in connect with the state trooper, the MUPD, and the National Guard, or some such thing. He was the liaison to the National Guard. Klan had been spotted on campus. So... People are freaking out about this. This tweet got 100 retweets, I believe. People believe that right-wing fighters are on campus. And then next, some drunk, it was like a white frat guy, stumbled into a meeting of the Legion of Black Collegians and got into a fight with a guy he'd had a problem with. So that was then painted as a racial incident. So during homecoming week, all of these protesters decided to stop the president's motorcade. I think they were carrying a stool for the president. They wanted him to get out, sit down, and have a conversation with them. Now, if you know anything about university executive administration, I'm KSU's ombudsman as well as one of our tenured professors. This is a big fundraising weekend, man. I mean, the president's not going to stop entertaining, you know, the governor or whatever to get out of his car and sit down and talk to these student radicals. So basically, he honked and his driver bumped one of them lightly on the leg and they went through the press of protesters. The protesters freaked out, went on Twitter, said they had been attacked with vehicles, attempted murder. This was, this was, uh, I think, almost the peak of the silliness of the of the Missouri incidents. But then, uh, this died down a little bit. <laughs> but that's all on video. It's all on video, Will. That you can see that clearly the car bumped the guy's knee, but it wasn't what he said. And then he wrote a tweet that said, "In our, he laughed in our faces. This is our president. This is your president. This is America 2015." And the whole. The whole school was in a hysteria mobocracy situation where the national media were there and it really hadn't even peaked yet. Yeah, this is okay. So that's where they were. And then the uh, the final two things that happened were Jonathan Butler's hunger strike and the poop swastika. So Jonathan Butler was a guy who claimed to be just a regular black student on campus. And he said that he had been driven so crazy by the racial incidents on campus that he was going to stop eating. And he said that one of the big motivators for his not eating was the high cost of health care on campus. As I recall, he said he couldn't afford it himself. And this was also portrayed as racist. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these standard terms were used like, and it's even more difficult for young feminist people of color to procure health care in this hit cis heterosexist institutional setting and so on. But anyway, so you had the hunger strike and then you had the poop swastika. You know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse rode onto the campus with, you know, locusts in their scabbards and deserts in their eyes. Someone wrote a swastika in human crap, allegedly, on the wall of one of the bathrooms. So this is the peak. This is when the football team quit and the president stepped down and so on. And I don't think, other than the sports journalist Clay Travis, who was going through kind of a red-pilled phase at this time, quote-unquote, he thought almost everything he read in the media was BS, is what I mean by that, and who very aggressively tackled this, no one really pointed out that step by step this just kept collapsing. So like going back to the first incidents, like Columbia is a decent sized city. It's the size of Frankfurt. Peyton Hid was at an intersection with a bunch of people, cameras. Nobody ever, even after a call for witnesses, said they heard anyone yell anything at him. Uh, my opinion is that it probably didn't happen. Uh, we know definitely that the KKK thing didn't happen because it, individuals like the chief of police and National Guard general said, no, that's a lie. Gotcha. And this just incredibly quickly was shoved under the rug. 
that the student body president had said there were armed Klansmen on campus and he was liaising with the army about how to fight them. Just just went away. Went away. Gone. And then it turned out that Butler was like, he was super wealthy. His dad was making like, eight, his dad was worth like $60 million or something. Yes, Butler's dad. Butler's dad seems like a genuinely cool guy, by the way. But Butler's dad, yeah, is one of the highest ranking African-American executives in the railroad industry. Uh, he's worth like $20 million. He lives in the same subdivision, I think, or at least the same area of Omaha as Warren Buffett. So... Butler had no problem buying health insurance or any other kind of insurance. The and they just kept collapsing. Like the as you mentioned, the president clearly didn't run over a protester with his tank. University presidents aren't assigned tanks. He took like the Lincoln town car and brushed some guy aside. The kid wasn't hurt. So it, it just all kept collapsing. But no one was willing to say that in public. And you finally got to the end. Even the poop swastika is kind of an interesting thing. It may or may not have happened. It probably happened. But only one police report states that it did. Wow. And although I've heard that there is an image contained in that report, I have not seen that image. I did a pretty fair amount of deep background on this. Uh, a number of people, including Clay Travis and a conservative Newsweekly, have called Missouri to see if they could find anyone who's seen it, like the presidents of white fraternities, black fraternities, campus officials, and no one has been willing to say on the record that they actually saw this. Incredible. Uh, yeah, the image that you see of the quote-unquote poop swastika, I feel kind of silly saying poop swastika to another grown man, but whatever. DC um, swastika, whatever. But it was, yeah. The, uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but like the image of this thing that's widely circulated, that appears in news articles today, I'm not the biggest like goof around on Reddit and 4chan guy, but it's something that's been circulating on the internet for like 10 years. It's a giant piece of crap, literally. You can find it just by Googling Reddit poop swastika. So, I mean, the standard image of this is just something that in internet culture has been known for years. So I, I, even that, it's questionable whether that happened. That happened. But, these questions just weren't asked until by anyone but Travis, who should get some credit. But until years later, I mean, people started asking them around 2017 when you started seeing faculty at Missouri, like chasing students away from media outlets and so on. When you started seeing the uh, campus population drop. But I, I close an entire chapter of the book with that, where I just ask, how could this have gotten to this point? I mean, how could a press release not have been issued saying this stuff didn't happen? How could the student body president be allowed to keep his job after saying, I mean, that, that's usually a board of regents level job at universities. I'm friendly with Michael Weaver, who's our student body president. But I mean, after saying that he was helping the army fight the Klan, the whole story just turned out to be complete BS and then went away. And that's that's very often what happens. Right, but the, the, the ramifications were serious. Like you said, the enrollment is down. The president, I think, got fired. And you said it was a you wrote that it was a textbook example of how not to deal with oh, yeah. these hoaxes because of like there was like anti-racist campus campus officials that were purchased. So you see all these changes that were made to things that were based upon events that either didn't happen or were fantastical that were uh, you know hyped up to get attention. Yeah, I, I don't think you can let the inmates run the asylum. I mean, if you have a large, woke student body that enjoys 
you know, marching around with signs and fighting counter protesters and shagging in the trees to make some kind of environmental point, you can't let them make your campus marketing decisions. Like you can maybe put up with them as long as they pay their tuition, but you can't say we're going to take what these people say at face value. And you recently saw, and I think, again, as someone who is to some extent a university executive, I think you might have seen the end of this with what happened in Oberlin. Oberlin, I was going to mention that, yes. Yeah, that, you can, you know, some of the stuff is screwing around on TV, even, you know, 20% decline in enrollment if you're going to close some buildings anyway, you can survive that for a year or two. Oberlin is, was, has been assessed so far, I believe, $44 million because they participated in one of these woke scold Twitter mob incidents. Right, so, it was based upon, it had racial overtones because the three uh, students were African-American or black, but the real issue was that they were trying to use a fake ID, if I get the facts correct. Well, yeah, it was uh, basically bluntly put, I'm comfortable saying this, you know, on the record, what happened was that three kids who happened to be black were stealing from a local store. Okay. They're, there's a beloved local bakery in that town. It's Gibson's. I think it's been in business for like five years. You know, I've had friends who are like considering grad school had been student athletes here. Mentioned the place casually or in the Illinois school. I forget exact background, but I've heard of the place. Legendary old school American bakery. And apparently these kids went there and they weren't like they didn't steal like a piece of crumb cake, which probably would have been ignored. They had a bunch of bottles of expensive wine in a backpack, as I recall the case. So they were walking out having stolen some of this stuff. And I think they tried to buy one bottle, but they didn't have identification. And the bakery staff was like, okay, enough of this. And said, I assume initially, like, we're going to give you a chance to put that stuff back. We know what's going on here. We might have to seize this ID. And a fight broke out. Like the son of the bakery owner basically got beaten up, although apparently held his own pretty well. So the police ended up getting involved and they had to arrest these kids who pleaded guilty immediately, by the way. Interesting. This case is... This Cases available on the public record. Like, it's not hard to find out what, whether someone's guilty or not guilty in court. So, for whatever reason, Oberlin decided that they were going to go hard line down the wire to support these students. So, students started picketing the bakery independently. And then faculty and staff let students take an entire day off from school just to protest the bakery. And a lot of them went along to protest the bakery, too. And this wasn't totally peaceful. There were people in front of the bakery doors, shouting, waving signs. The bakery started losing custom because no one wants to get into a fist fight when they go pick up their morning Danish. And the bakery did what I hope more people start doing and sued their asses for defamation. They yeah. said that they'd been presented as racists, even though the kids who had done this had all pled guilty in open court. Right. And I mean, they had to close the, my understanding is they had to close the bakery. There were 14 employees who relied upon the bakery for their income, their livelihood of their family. So the effects were, uh, my understanding, were very severe. So uh, it's just a perfect example of what you said earlier, which get woke, go broke. Yeah. And I, I no, I, I do know the bakery is back open. I don't think they were closed for very okay. long. And okay. I, I imagine that there was substantial support. I think that there is a silent majority made up of almost everyone in the country, actually. White heartland residents, black military veterans, legal immigrants. I mean, most people, when they hear these crazy stories, don't immediately believe them. So my understanding is that there was substantial underground support for Gibson's from the beginning, like people shopping in the late evening and so on. And they, they are open now again. But Gibson's just said, this is ridiculous. You have these people that are admitted thieves 
that went to court and took a guilty plea that had this stuff on them, that they're pictures of the items apparently, but who nonetheless went back into this woke scold culture and claimed that we abused them. No, we're not racist. We're going to take them to court. So they were awarded 11 million in compensatories, which probably does reflect the effect on, as you said, 14 people, the place being shut down for whatever it actually was, five months, you know, as a high volume business. But then in that state, you can get three times as many punitives as compensatory damages in a legal verdict. So the jury just gave them the maximum amount of punitive damages. They obviously wanted to sort of slap Oberlin in the mouth for being this wealthy, pretentious, quasi woke institution, in my opinion. All right. Uh, virtue signaling. We got it right. Yeah. Yep. So that's pretty remarkable. I mean, we're at the 40 minute mark. Uh, the book is excellent. You do provide solutions at the end. There are four solutions. One of the interesting things is you referenced an academic by the name of David Cop Coppell, who says that the penalties for fake hate crimes should mimic actual hate crimes uh, or have stricter penalties, which I thought was interesting. Before we come to an end, do you want to do you have any opinions or views upon the Jesse Smollett case or that happened after you completed the book? Well, uh, first, only half jokingly, I'd like to thank Jesse Smollett. I mean, he certainly helped project my book near the bestseller lists. I I don't think that and you never want to engage in schadenfreude. I mean, except for this incident, Smollett seems to have been a pleasant enough sort of guy. He worked on a show in my hometown of Chicago. But because of Smollett's hoax, which is obviously what it was, Hate crime hoaxes were in the news for the entire week before my book dropped. Wow. And as I recall, this was formally exposed as a hoax with the Osandarios on TV and so on the day after we released. So there was the, one of the biggest hate crime hoaxes of all time took place in a neighborhood I'm very familiar with in my hometown. Wow. Um, and it definitely, I'll say, didn't hurt sales. I mean, I did Tucker Carlson um, and one of the major Lexington uh, TV shows the day after this happened. So, wow. you know, on the one hand, personally, I can't be too mad at the guy. Um, what do I think about this overall? I think it's one of the archetypal cases of hate hoax where almost all of the elements are present. Um, you have someone who is very left wing. You have someone who sees financial potential. You have someone who's embedded within woke culture yeah. and this particular individual is so aware of how we sometimes reward victimization that his strategy for getting a promotion and a raise became, why don't I just make up one of these BS stories? Because to some extent, to the modern left, the most precious protected thing you can be is a victim. Gotcha. And that, that's where the case came from. And I mean, obviously, you could go into, I mean, there. hopefully someone will rename Jussie Smollett, you know, Tessie Smolin or something and write a couple thrillers about this because then you got into the crazy Chicago politics where the prosecutor who apparently had been in touch with the former president's chief of staff right. dropped all the charges against Mr. Smollett. I mean, that was the whole thing's a circus. Now we've got a special prosecutor coming into the city uh, who's probably going <laughs> to reopen the case. Well, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that she, Fox is in trouble. And there was a, right away after she made her decision not to prosecute, the, there was a group of uh, state prosecutors who formally put out a, a paper saying that what she did was not within, you know, was not appropriate. And she actually, she said that she recused herself but didn't write it in writing, so which is uh, not good. So she didn't fully, properly, legally recuse herself as far as my understanding yeah. is. So. 
Now, I'm not a, I'm not primarily a prosecutor by background, although you don't necessarily specialize in law school the way you do in grad school. But I will say that that was ridiculous. When you recuse yourself as a district attorney level individual, what you do is pull your office back from the case and let another large DA's office handle it. So Chicago has very good relations, for example, with Naperville, which is a large affluent suburb of the city. It would have made sense to let DuPage County take over that. But you can't just say verbally, like, I'm not on the case no more, you know, and step down and then let your second man step forward and say, by God, I'm on the case. Right. Which is kind of what they did. And I'm not trying to make up Chicago accents for either one of them, but it is ridiculous BS. Like, yeah. I, I think most people knew what that was. You kind of felt sorry for the guy, too, uh, Maggots, I believe, because oh, Jussie right, right. Smollett. Yeah, Smollett immediately tried to spin this as, I'm not guilty. See, look, they dropped the charges. And Maggots had to stand up and say, like, no, we're not that incompetent. You know, Smollett forfeited $10,000 in bond. You know, Smollett did 16 hours of community service. You know, at some point, this case is going to be unsealed. We're not saying this guy's innocent at all. But that then left him in the awful position of being in that press conference for 40 more minutes where people ask, well, then why'd you drop the charges? Right. So he was kind of he was kind of led to the slaughter there. I mean, his it always sucks to be the second man in an office. Yeah, you handle this. Yeah. Oh, man. So anyway, that'll be an interesting to follow up. I think you have your next book on the subject. You know, there's a lot of material for a follow up to this book. Is there anything that you would like to add? Anything I missed? Anything uh, where people can reach you or any any other further anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, first of all, my next book is going to be called Taboo, The Difficulty and Importance of Discussing Race and Class. And it looks at the entire continuing oppression narrative behind the surge of hate crime hoaxes. So I look at a whole bunch of the things you're not supposed to discuss in America. Um, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement. Is there any validity to the claim black people are being killed by cops? It turns out, no. I mean, in a typical year, less than 1,200 people die in confrontations with the police. Only about 250 of them are black. Less than 100 of them of all races are unarmed. That's basically just a made-up narrative. And then we get into some of the things you're not supposed to talk about, like differences between racial groups and between the sexes in terms of things like rates of crime, uh, differences between men and women, um, what racism means. Like, I look at the bizarre idea that only whites can be racist. Uh, there's a chapter kind of taking apart the idea of white privilege or cultural appropriation. Uh, the thing that privileges you most in life is being smart. Number two is your parents being rich. I don't think that would surprise anybody. But the idea that every white guy has this kind of advantage is just BS. I devote a chapter to my problems with the alt-right on the other side. So, I mean, that's the next chapter, the next book. We need to start talking about some of this stuff because a lot of what you hear in kind of the, the media we're allowed to consume is just bullshit. It's just not real. And when can that book, when is that book being published, do you know? That's dropping with uh, the same publisher, actually, large, right-leaning uh, Regnery Press. We have a two-book deal, uh, January 1st, 20, I guess 2020. Got my years a little mixed up there. So within the next nine months, people can expect that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the interview. I really appreciate it. Great book. Highly recommend it. Again, the title of the book is Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And the author, again, is Wilfred, Wilfred Riley. Thank you so much, Wilfred. And Thank you for having me. And can I say one final thing? Absolutely. Oh, in terms of getting in touch with me, which you mentioned, I'm uh, pretty easy to contact. 
My primary social media platform actually is Facebook. I think Twitter gets into a lot of back and forth mobbing between left and right. But I'm Wilfred Riley, just my name on Facebook. I've got a fan page, personal page. I will literally add you and trade messages. Uh, I am on Twitter, hundreds of followers, actually. I just don't use it very much. But I'm Will uh, underscore Duh Beast, as in Will the Beast, 630 uh, at the Twitter platform. Um, I mean, my email is Wilfred Riley at Kentucky State. You can find that pretty easily just by going to the university website. So if you have a question about the book or you want to engage and talk about anything, I'm pretty available. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much, Wilfred Riley. Have a great day. Thanks for having me, man. Have a good day. Cool. You too. All right. Now is the best time to start working at Amazon. They're offering sign-on bonuses up to $3,000 and hourly pay up to $22 per hour. You'll bring home a great weekly paycheck and many jobs come with benefits that start on your first day. That's higher pay, sign-on bonuses, benefits day one. And you'll be part of a safe and inclusive workplace ranked among the best in the world. Go to amazon.com apply to start your job search today. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. Fall is the most birthday-packed season of the year, so chances are you have a few celebrations coming up. Make sure your friends and family feel special with a gorgeous bouquet of roses from 1-800-Flowers.com. 1-800-Flowers makes it easy to send the perfect gift. 24 multicolored roses for just $39.99. To get 24 multicolored roses for just $39.99, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in.